0: Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with the UK writer, Natalie Haynes. Natalie is a past star of the Cambridge Footlights, a former stand-up comedian and a classicist. She's the author of a novel, The Amber Fury, and the book, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. She writes for The Independent and The Guardian, is a regular broadcaster, and has judged both the Booker and the Orange Prizes for Fiction. In this session, she takes to the stage to give us classic tips for modern living in conversation with Ian Sharp. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Hello everybody, welcome to An Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Clearly, I'm the more ancient of the two people that you can see in front of you, but Natalie Haynes is incomparably a better guide to the classical world. Famously, Natalie is not just a Cambridge-educated classical scholar. She has also worked for many years as a stand-up comic, and she's agreed to do some stand-up comedy... (laughs) For us today, that's that's probably why we're both still standing, yeah. I will soon sit, sit down. And it's also why we were uncertain, you know, sort of whether to stay there or yeah. come up here. Um, but as as well as being a stand-up comic and a classical scholar, Natalie, you know, sort of was a very good um, essayist, journalist, reviewer. And um, also a book prize judge. She was on the Man Booker Judging Committee when Eleanor Catton's The Luminaries won the Booker Prize. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> You're welcome, New Zealand. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's also, you know, sort of, I think, a brilliant novelist. If you haven't read The Amber Fury, I... Thoroughly recommend that you go out and buy a copy, in you know, so as you leave the session.
0: You heard it uh, here first. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Voice of reason.
1: But but now you know, sort of over to Natalie for some stand-up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I was going to go if you want it, but then you all clapped in a nice way. So that made me feel loved and wanted. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm happy to talk to you about, uh, well, for as long as you want, really, about whatever bit of the ancient world you want, really. Um, you can have whatever you like. There are... Um eight chapters to Ancient Guide, which I should know by now. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been touring that book for five years. Um, so it'll be hilarious when I once again can't remember them all. Um, but first of all, if that's all right, I'll give you a sort of a little whistle-stop idea of how the book generally works. And then you can make a choice if you want another story. Um, hopefully we'll have time. Um, so uh, tragedy, comedy, Tragedy. Oh yeah, okay, good choice. I like tragedy better too. That's why I quit being a stand-up comic for more tragedy. Um, so when I was writing Ancient Guide at the same time, so there's a story that's not in the book which makes it nicer, uh, for you, um, uh, is, uh, I was making a radio documentary about Greek tragedy and soap opera, um, and the enormous overlaps between the two. Uh, it was called the documentary Oedipus Enders. Um, which is a joke i really didn't think would translate to the opposite side of the world from eastenders but it turns out to be just fine um so the overlaps it sounds like a kind of um it sounds like a very radio 4 kind of program to make um for the bbc loves making that kind of program especially if uh, if i'm going to do it because i'm a massive nerd um and uh, and it was a very radio 4 kind of program but it was much more interesting um, than it kind of first appeared because we started out looking at Aristotle, right? The principles of Greek tragedy appear in Aristotle's Poetics. Um, and things that he likes about Greek tragedy, number one, unity of time, right? Number two, unity of place. But number one, unity of time. And all soap also has unity of time. By which I mean, if you want... Uh, a tv show or a film that moves backwards and forwards through time that has flashbacks foreshadowing um you know you might suddenly find the backstory of a character peeling out and something you're going to go for aaron sorkin right or you know somebody who's going to give you that kind of complex script in film it turns probably christopher nolan i'm not going to lie i find him overrated but you can't deny the man enjoys playing with time um with a soap it's always linear right nobody ever walks in to the set of a soap and says hello i am the long lost brother of and people go wait and then it's it's always linear right time always moves forward it's usually a day in the episode of a soap people don't often go to bed and get up and sometimes they do it's very rarely more than two days sometimes in eastenders they have like real time episodes that are 28 minutes of two people talking um they also have i know it sounds compelling doesn't it wait um (laughs) uh they also have unity of place right where do you think uh eastenders is set <laughs> right in the east end if it was set if it the if they retitled it wolford which is the sort of imaginary part of london it's set in it'd be the exact same show right if they retitled it albert square it'd be the exact same show if they retitled it the queen vic the pub in which everybody's action generally would still be the same show it's just a question of focus coronation street is set where Right, Shoreland Street is set where they all have total unity of place. When people leave EastEnders to go to Manchester, which is, just for those of you who haven't been researching your uh, British geography, 200 miles away from EastEnders, it is the same as if they had died. There is no overlap in the world. It has total unity of place. It happens in the East End. You leave the East End. You don't exist in the world of this. It's exactly the same with Greek tragedy. Say um, the Oedipus, uh, Oedipus the king, uh, Aristotle's very favorite Greek tragedy, all takes place uh, in the space between, in Thebes, the city of Thebes, where Oedipus is king. um, And it all takes place in the space between the city, which is where you all are, the audience, and the palace, which is behind him. So it all takes place in the kind of space between private and public. They are liminal plays. They exist in this kind of space between two worlds. But they have total unity of time, total unity of place. There are also massive thematic overlaps. And this isn't an accident. I interviewed loads of people who write on soaps. And loads of them had done classics, either at school or at university. A bunch more. In fact, almost all of them had done the BBC's drama writing course. And that involves doing the principles of Aristotle and so they were all kind of expert on Greek tragedy and if you go into their writers rooms they have these big whiteboards ideas boards with ideas taped to the wall generally they've cut them out of newspapers and they're pretty much always tragic right usually it's a woman who inadvertently gets drunk and you know drives over her own dog Um, and then no don't be sad (laughs) it's an imaginary dog it's all right (laughs) he's fine he gets up I just clipped him he didn't even like that bit. He likes three legs better. It makes him more stable, like a stool. Is it all right now? Okay. Uh, <laughs> poor imaginary dog. So, normally I would say child, but I thought you might find that sad. <laughs> Turns out, dog, more upsetting. You and me, of one mind. Um, so they have an array of tragic stories. Um, but up there, I saw them with my own eyes, index cards uh, with the titles of Greek tragedies. And I spoke to one writer after another and said, you know, what do you use? And this one guy said, I always go for the Oresteia because it's always about intergenerational conflict, right? It's parents against children, children against parents. And that, of course, is, is also soap, right? Everybody in a soap has to know everybody else. That's one of the rules of soap. There's no character in any soap opera who doesn't know everyone else in it. They have to all have relationships that can conflict and change, all right? So um, anything where you have lots of generations is a good idea. Siblings at war, the seven against thieves, you really want brothers set against brothers. Anytime you can do that, you're onto a winner. And I said, is there anything you, you wouldn't use? And, and are you really telling me that when you've got the chance, you know, to, to try and improve a story, it's the tragedies that you go to? He said, yeah, we sit in the writer's room and someone will say, this plot just doesn't have enough drama. How can we? And I quote, Greek it up. <laughs> it's like, seriously? Well, what haven't you used? He said, we tried to use the Medea, Euripides Medea. Do you know this story? A woman whose husband betrays her so she kills their own children in revenge spectacular spectacular play Um, and uh, and I said oh you tried and he said yeah yeah when we had these two characters called Tanya and Max who appeared on EastEnders um, he was having an affair and we were going to do the Medea storyline she was going to kill the children as punishment but this is the one crucial difference between soap and tragedy a Greek tragedy even if you do it quite slowly it takes about 90 minutes to perform that's a week's worth of soap And then you have to come back next week. If she kills the kids, you're going to have to put the character in jail for 20 years. She can't just come back next week, dusting herself off. What children? No one remembers. It's it's not an option. I was like, oh, okay. So what did you do when 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 Max is having an affair and and Tanya was going to kill the children and then you decided not to do that? What did you do? He said, oh, she just buried him alive. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Wait. Wait. What? Uh, a, 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 it's like an inverse Antigone storyline, I think. But anyway, it's nice to know that Greek tragedy has this across-the-board appeal, I hope, um, because it bothers me that it gets kind of withdrawn as high art, um, when, of course, it should be art for everyone. You know, Greek tragedies were first performed at the Dionysia, the celebration religious festival of Dionysus. And Dionysus, of course, is the god of theatre, but he's also the god of wine. So it's very important, that if you get the chance to go and see a Greek tragedy... You really should be a little bit drunk. Before you go, I don't want any high minded excuses about how it's not what Aeschylus would have wanted. It's definitely what Aeschylus would have wanted. What you need to do is be several sheets to the wind. You are, after all, a major wine producing nation. I think you have to acknowledge that Greek tragedy kind of belongs to you uh, and you should take it back. Um, I'm going to stop talking because otherwise um, I'll just make Ian sit here the entire time looking like he wished he could say something. (laughs) So so, uh, I'll stop talking for a minute and sit down. I'll do that. It'll be fun. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, one of the obvious questions, Natalie, is how did you become so interested in the classical world? Did you always love Greek tragedy? And yeah, yeah I,
0: yeah, I did. As a uh, child.
1: It,
0: yeah. yeah, well, I didn't start reading about children murdering parents until I was a little bit older than, you know, made my parents uncomfortable. Um, I think that was for the best. Uh, Yeah, I was really lucky. I got taught it from the age of 11 at school, Um, so I had a very good Latin teacher um, who found he was very had a very dry sense of humour, and uh, he was just delightful. And then, as soon as I could take up Greek, when I guess I was 14, I took up Greek. and, uh, and my, I was really lucky with my set text. I got Aeneid 4 for my uh, A level in Latin, so when I was 17 or 18. Um, and I got uh, Iliad, I think, Iliad 6 and 7 um, for Greek. So I was incredible. And, and this Plato Symposium, I got just brilliant texts. It was very hard not to be thrilled by them. So yeah, it, it had me at hello. Classics had me at hello.
1: I'd, I'd like to just ask the audience something. Are there many people in the audience who have had a similar educational background to that of being sort of steeped in the classics from a young age? If, If you
0: have, could you raise your hand? Come on, classicists for the win.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because I was here doing a, the school's day on Thursday, and it, this place was packed out with unbelievably polite children. Um, and mm. they were kind of warning me backstage and saying, oh, nobody will have really done classics because they don't really do it to university. And I was like, okay, fine, you know, I'll just change the kind of tone to make it more differently accessible. And I came out and I went, how many of you have done any classics? And the, the entire room was like, yeah. and I was like, really? If I asked that in the UK, it would be 5% tops, unless I was in a fee-paying school. Really and truly, I was like, "God, you're just creating a generation of super classicists." Nice <laughs> sneaky plan, New Zealand. This is how you take over the world.
1: In, in the acknowledgements for you know, of *An Ancient Guide to Modern Life*, uh, you mention David Sedley, the, the famous classicist at Cambridge, mm. and you start to tell you know, an extraordinary story of how he let you into the college because you know how to change the oil in a Morris minor.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's hundred <laughs> percent true. Everyone, there are always these kind of extraordinary uh, urban myths, or maybe there should be a better word for that. sort of ivory tower myths, um, about how you get into Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and want to give you an, an example of how these stories work. Um, the, the urban myth of my generation, when I was 17 and filling in my application form, by hand, I bet you get to type them up now. And you were just terrified that you'd accidentally, you know, get a letter wrong and they go, well, that person's an idiot and file you in the bin. Um, because luckily, of course, working really hard at school doesn't at all create anxiety. That's fine. Um, mm. But, uh, so I'd written it really carefully, and I was trying really hard. But the urban myth at the time was that uh, somebody knew somebody who had known somebody whose brother had had an interview at either Oxford or Cambridge at one particular college, usually an old one where they're specially malevolent. Um, and uh, they were going to read, you know, philosophy or something. And so the uh, philosophy... Um, Don, who interviewed them, uh, had a brick on the table. Do you know this urban myth? Um, there's a brick on the table and the guy says, you know, throw it out the window. And the student, you know, panicking, kind of says, oh, okay, and throws it out of the window, smashes the glass and then doesn't get the place because you're supposed to open the window. So, <laughs> so I was kind of ready. Do you know what I was braced for? Some kind of impossible riddle um, mm. of the kind that Oedipus might solve. It always really mm. bothers me, that, about the Oedipus story. You know that he solves the riddle mm. of the Sphinx, what has four legs in the morning and two legs in the afternoon and three legs in the evening and the answer is a man because I know because when (laughs) when you're born you're a baby and you crawl on all well you don't obviously crawl you lie there until somebody Mm. feeds you but then after a while you start crawling and then you can stand and then you get a stick and you just think no one would ever have guessed that that Sphinx would have been happily eating wrongful guesses. But that. It would still be there now in Egypt. Anyway, um, my moment came when I was uh, standing... It was really cold because it was December, which uh, is obviously the winter in Cambridge. Uh, when I say that, uh, actually the entire year is the winter in Cambridge. Uh, it's cold there all the time. And all those lovely films where... Oh, it looks so lovely. Doesn't it look lovely and sunny? No, minus five, they're wearing vests. Um, and, uh, and so it was incredibly cold, and I was waiting in a, a, you know, one of those rooms where you go up stone staircases that are literally 500 years old. So they're basically worn in the middle to a slide. And you think, oh, it's going to be really ironic if I get a place at college and then die on the way out when I lose my footing and smash my head. Um, like I said, no anxiety, though, so it's fine. Um, and I was waiting, and this perfectly nice girl came out crying... From her interview, I, oh no, I didn't hear any glass break. Um, (laughs) I wonder what's happened. And I said, are you all right? And she said, no, it was awful. And I said, were they mean to you? And she said, oh, they were really nice. (laughs) And ran away. (laughs) And so I sat there feeling colder and colder and thinking, I just, (laughs) uh, and I walked into this office and David Sedley, who is, I, I did not know then, but the, one of maybe two of the most brilliant uh, Hellenistic philosophy experts in the world um, was sitting there. I I had no idea who he was. Um, And uh, he was sitting there with a sort of slightly impish expression. And he looked at my form, which I had very carefully, you'll recall, hand-filled in with my best handwriting, which is still awful. In case you want me to sign a book, I'm telling you now. Um, And uh, he said, there's one question I've been burning to ask you since I saw this form. And I went, okay, Hmm. waiting for the tears. Um, And he said, how do you keep a 1959 Morris Minor on the road? And I was like, seriously, we're talking car maintenance? (laughs) That I can do. Because I had bought, the year I turned 17, so I could learn to drive legally, I worked all summer and bought my first car for £795. Um, So what is that? $1,600. And uh, it was twice my age the year I bought it. Um, And the year that it went to live on a farm... Which was a very sad time for everybody that we don't like Mm. to discuss. The year they went Mm. to live on a farm, uh, maybe three years later, um, when the man came to take it to the farm, um, he kicked it on the mudguard, and the whole it was so rotten, the bottom was so rotten, that it collapsed onto its own wheels. (laughs) (laughs) My mum was like, I'm really glad you're not driving that. Mm. Uh, I wonder when that was it. We found a biscuit tin welded into the floor. I mean, really. (laughs) Um, But actually, of course, I thought at the time he was demented. Um, And talking about car maintenance, wasn't it? But now I think it was quite a good question, really. He wanted to know that I was passionate about something that was essentially, you know, fairly abstruse. He wanted to know that I cared enough. There was no need in the 1990s to learn how to fix a car that had been built in 1959. It was clearly something, it was just knowledge for the sake of it. And I suppose Mm. that's actually the kind of person you probably would want studying classics. Well, I hope so, because he got me, so too bad. (laughs) How, how
1: did you get involved in stand-up comedy?
0: A handsome man.
1: A handsome man. <laughs>
0: the, big, the undoing of so many people. A handsome uh-huh. man. Not the handsome man who is with me tonight, brackets, the good one. <laughs> um, but uh, 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 an early draft of the handsome man, let's say. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, Oh, God, he was so beautiful. I mean, mm. he really, properly Adonis beautiful to give him his full classical mm. due. Um, and I, he was a friend of a friend of mine. He was studying English, and I was studying classics. Um, and she uh, is now a very successful radio presenter. Um, uh, she knew that I, re- I really liked him. Um, and so she invited me along to a party. Um, and he was just heart, he was just heart stopping. Um, mm. And uh, we were talking. And he said drunkenly, I think you're the funniest girl I've ever met. And I went, it's not not quite prettiest, is it? (laughs) I mean, it's a start. (laughs) It's it's not necessarily the ideal start, but Mm. I was so keen to see him again that I said, Oh yeah, we should write something for footlights. (laughs) (laughs) Love me. (laughs) Love me. Um, And uh, so I said, Oh yeah, we should write something for footlights, the Cambridge kind of comedy Mm. society. And, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be really great. And then, sorry, we copped off. Um, and it went delightfully, uh, and then a couple of days later he turned up at my room and he had written a sketch which was abysmal and I thought <laughs> oh, I can't possibly go to an audition and, and do this that would be mortifying so I was like oh yeah I'm working on something too um, and, uh, and so I hand wrote I still do handwrite when I write stand-up at all I still do write it by hand it's the only thing I still write by hand everything else tap tap tap, tap stand-up like this um, so I handwrite a stand-up sir, and then there was an audition for Footlights on the Monday I think I mean literally four or five days later and he romantically walked me to the audition so I couldn't romantically run away <laughs> and then I got auditioned by oh Robert Webb do you get Mitchell and Webb here? yeah so yes. Robert Webb uh, auditioned me um, not in a euphemistic way actually um, <laughs> And uh, I was busy involved with the other man. What kind of woman do you think I was? Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and they gave me... The, and it, it was like... Oh, it's like the... I've never taken heroin, but I imagine walking out on stage in front of 227 people who laugh at every moment that you were hoping they would is a lot like taking heroin. It was just... We, and he and I dated for, I think, five weeks, and then he broke my heart into a thousand shards, and 13 years later, stand-up comedy had, you know, it had totally changed my life. It got me nominated for awards. It you know, waltzed me into the BBC. So, undeniably, it was the right choice for me. But a handsome man is the answer.
1: Well, <laughs> where Were you... Writing for for newspapers while you were doing stand up during those yeah. thirteen
0: years? Yeah, so, I mean about the first when people ask about stand up I always say the first five years were the worst. And they were they were terrible, and I was sick with nerves all the time. But then after that, after about after about the first five years, really of constantly feeling like you might throw up or die, um, it was fine. Ooh. It was fine after that. <laughs> uh, so I had more free days to spend less time being sick, <laughs> and wishing I was dead. Um, and so yeah, I did. Um, I did some topical TV show uh, called. The last word. It was very... I had an audience of about 15 people, I think, um, rounded up to the nearest 15. (laughs) Um, And uh, I did an episode of that with a guy called Danny Finkelstein, now Lord Finkelstein, which is frankly Mm. ludicrous. I mean, it's not that he's not Mm. very brilliant, but it just (laughs) seems madness. Anyway... um, he was, at the time, the, the comment editor of the Times newspaper. Mm-hmm. And um, the humorist who had had a very uh, popular column there for many years, a man named Alan Corrin, um, was very ill and, uh, as it became clear, was dying. So I, did, I, I took over Alan Corrin's uh, chunk of the paper for a year because the, uh, the person who would eventually take it over, Giles Corran, you'll be surprised to hear, is his mm-hmm. son and, uh, and, and was too sad to do it. So I kind of filled in there. And, you know, it's kind of fun writing for the newspapers. Yeah, I mean, you have to have an opinion on things that you maybe don't always have an opinion on. You think, oh, I don't care. Just mm-hmm. pick one. <laughs> yes, I'm in favor. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, mostly I quite like it. Uh,
1: I, I should just say to the audience that if you don't know Natalie's website, which is just nataliehaines.com, it's well worth investigating because Natalie has generously you know, sort of allowed a lot of articles from The Independent, The Guardian, and The Times... To appear on that website.
0: Yeah, it's not completely up to date, because the man mm. who runs it um, is my best friend from college, uh, and he's, he's on sabbatical this year in America. He's busy teaching, so I <laughs> have to wait till he comes back to put the most recent ones on, because I feel kind of bad writing to him going, "Dolly, I know you're busy with your two children and your job, but if you could just do my website in the spare eight seconds of awakeness that you have, <laughs> that your wife doesn't need you for, that would be great. So it will be up to date soon when he gets back, uh, June, in case you were wondering. <laughs> not that I've been counting. Mm
1: -hmm. how how did your children's book the great escape come about
0: by accident
1: by accident yeah by accident um there wasn't a handsome man involved there wasn't there
0: were no handsome men involved in the making of that book yeah um which is why the protagonist is a cat um who is quite (laughs) handsome though to be fair he's very very smart yeah Yeah. well he is a handsome cat and he's he's very unlike my own cats um Although I'm currently catless, uh, At one point we had three. My mom and I had three. Um, in case you were wondering about the classics, uh, they were called uh, Cassandra and Figenia, um universally known as Cass and Fig. Um, and then we just got used to those. And then a male cat um, who had a limp turned up. And we called him Oedipus the Needipus. <laughs> <laughs> uh instantly known as needy of course but oh so gratifying it's like a male one with a limp it just couldn't have gone better um oedipus in case you don't know this oedipus means swollen foot so it's a particularly good i'm so clever but it, you know what i mean it's a particularly good thing um but i so i always loved cats and i um just had one of those moments where you sometimes get them when you're trying to write you know, I was on tour and I didn't particularly set out to write a children's book. But the opening scene of that book, which is a little girl called Millie, and she is helping her dad to clean windows. Her dad is far too brilliant to be a window cleaner. Not that window cleaners aren't brilliant, but you'll have to wait and see. Um, but for various reasons, he's cleaning windows at this office building, and she is helping him because it's the summer holidays. Um, and then uh, she doesn't know what they do in the building, but she, something weird's going on. And she's cleaning the doors, the automatic doors. Oh, the trouble I got into with electric doors. Jesus. Um, uh, And uh, she's had to flip the switch on them so they don't open so she can clean them. And suddenly she sees this grey shadow pelting towards her down the corridor um, and uh, she opens the door and it's a cat and it runs outside and she says, hello, what are you doing here? Because people do talk to cats and the cat says, I don't have time to explain. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER It's very important that you hide me. Um, And thus, an adventure is born. And there's lots of computer hacking and a heist. The heist in the middle is genuinely good. I'm not going to lie to you, it has structural issues as a book. If I wrote it now, it would be better. But the heist in the middle is genuinely good. And uh, and Max is a joyous creation. He is a a Belgian cat of enormous confidence and uh, aplomb and he has the most beautiful... He's a Chartreux cat, and they, I would never own such a cat myself. I always got the ratty mm. ones from the cat's home, or the broken one that turned up with a bad paw. Um, but he is a very beautiful pedigree cat, which in my imagination I would have. I would never do it. I would go and get another ratty one. I,
1: I, I've seen an interview with you where the interviewer suggested that Millie, the little girl on the, in The Great Escape, must be a self-portrait. <laughs> and you said that actually you were much more like Max.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Um, actually, that is completely true. That Literally everybody who read Great Escape, when mm. they read it, because she has messy hair, I know, um, and she's vegetarian. Mm. So we do have some overlap for sure. But she's a big kind of computer nerd, which is way out of my league. Um, I have to hire other people to be computer nerds on my behalf. Um, and actually, it was Dan. Um, say hello. This is Dan. Oh, it's Dan, <laughs> It's the other half of me. There he is. Um, but it was Dan who, when he first read it, just looked at it and went, yeah, yeah. you're the cat. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally the cat. Look how mean and funny and pleased with itself the cat is. Go, yeah, no, that is... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, undeniably true. Yeah, I'm much more like Max. And the ancient guide
1: um, grew out of newspaper columns?
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, the Times asked me when uh, Gordon Brown... Remember Gordon Brown... Um, mm-hmm. When Gordon Brown uh, was destroying the fortunes of the Labour Party for a while, um, they asked me, when he became leader, they asked me if I would write a piece uh, because it had been such a weird kind of bloodless coup, it was a very Labour Party thing to do in the UK, that they sort of turned on Tony Blair, who had propelled them to an incredible, unrivaled run of victories, electoral victories. So they sort of all hated him. They had this kind of weird, kind of passive-aggressive relationship with him. So they kind of let him be there for a while and then deposed him and replaced him with... uh, with Gordon Brown, and they asked me if I would work out what kind of Roman emperor he was like um, and write a piece about that, and it turned out that uh, it was more fun to do a whole, a whole collection of Roman emperors um, and, uh, and current contemporary leaders um, so Gordon Brown was Tiberius, because Tiberius was famously kind of diffident and bad at communication and, and antagonised people um, even though you know, he probably wasn't as evil as he is painted by history and, um, and that meant that he was the direct descendant of Augustus Um, which worked perfectly for Tony Blair because he was the master of spin. You know, Augustus, you know this, right? Uh, Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is assassinated on the steps of a theater for being a dictator. Augustus comes and does the exact same thing but he never calls himself a dictator. He calls himself primus inter pares, the first among equals, and somehow manages to rule for 30-something years. He's (laughs) the master of spin over um, actuality. Uh, And so that made perfect sense. And then I went through all the sort of recent contemporary... Uh, leaders and and paired them up and uh, people wrote into the times for about three months it was one of the longest correspondences um going well it's all very well for you to suggest that this person is nerva but uh, why haven't you even considered that this person is clearly septimius severus (laughs) 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 dear sir stroke madam i'm sure you're right you're sincerely natalie haynes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's how i reply to anyone who writes in. <laughs> had
1: had it been a desire for a long time to do a novel as well yes yeah.
0: always i once interviewed do you know the uh, american humorist fan Laborwitz? She she's very very she's almost entirely forgotten because she wrote these spectacular columns in the 80s 70s and 80s and then basically had writer's block ever since um she wrote a children's book called uh Mr. Chaz and Lisa Sue Meet the Pandas. I think about pandas who live in a New York brownstone. Um, A very beautiful picture book. And she wrote these amazing columns, which are full of the most brilliant Bon Mo. God, I would give a year of my life to have written. Isn't that the story of my life? Always a godmother, never the god. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know. No, I know. Um, And I interviewed her for a radio program. Uh, She's famously reclusive. But there's a brilliant documentary about her by uh, Martin Scorsese, um, which is called... Public Speaking. Speaking. Um, I I can do all this on my own. Um, anyway if it's on netflix or something like that it's a brilliant documentary she's so interesting Uh, but i interviewed her um, over the phone for a a documentary for radio four and i said did you always want to be a writer and she said as soon as i realized that books weren't like trees and that somebody had to make them i wanted to be a person who made them and it was such a good answer i've simply stolen it so yeah i always wanted to write a novel as soon as i realized books weren't like trees
1: In some ways, the Amber Fury could have been called an an ancient guide to modern life, too. um, Yeah. um, Since since the characters are... I don't want to give too much of the plot away. It's really hard
0: to talk about this book, isn't it? uh, Um, Yeah, no, it is really difficult, because it's a... Well, I hope it's a thriller, a, a, a little bit of a thriller, so it's quite suspenseful, um, and it means you can only ever... When I read from it, which, if you're unlucky, I will, um, I only ever do the first page and a half, because otherwise you just end up giving things away. So,
1: Actually, why don't you do the first page and oh a half? Oh, dear.
0: Half? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so, all right, um, <sighs> all I'll right. just read the first page and a half. Um, it's about... It's a contemporary novel, set now... In, well, it's set in 2011, which was contemporary when I wrote it, um, and now, bafflingly, is years ago. How's that happened? Um... And uh, it's set in Edinburgh, um, which was kind of weird for me because before we came to Auckland, we were in Dunedin for the book festival there, and I didn't realise that the entire street plan is basically Edinburgh and that when you go over the river, it's called The Waters of Leith. It's like, like, I'm being stalked by my own novel. (laughs) How's this happening? (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Um, And uh, So it's about uh, a woman named Alex Morris who has suffered a terrible tragedy before the book begins. Um, and uh, it's a massive cheat in terms of it's not like a Greek tragedy insofar as it does not have unity of time because there are three timelines in this book Um, there's Alex's timeline in the present um, there's the story that she's telling us from the previous year and there's a diary entry which runs concurrently so she suffers this terrible tragedy she moves to Edinburgh which is where she had been a student Um, she gives up her job which is directing plays she's a theatre director and she goes to teach drama at a pupil referral unit um so in other words a place where students who are too badly behaved to be in regular school have been put um and she has one class of five students who are very difficult uh and she eventually persuades them to start learning um with greek tragedy they're not interested in shakespeare they're not interested in contemporary drama Um, the first thing they don't already know they hate is Greek tragedy, because they just don't know anything about it. So the, the first play they read is Oedipus the King. Because I think if you want to win over recalcitrant teens, then, you know, incest, parent murder, probably the way to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, but one of her five students learned something that she wasn't intending to teach. So uh, I'll read you the first page and a half. I won't read you the prologue, which is very short, um, but is in an accent I can't do. Uh, so rather than insult the people of Scotland... On I'll go straight to Act 1. It's written in five acts. I told you it's a tragedy. The first thing they ask me is how I met her. They already know how we met, of course. But that won't be why they're asking. It never is. I remember when Luke was training. He told me that you only ever ask a question if you already know the answer. Lawyers don't like surprises, least of all when they're on the record. So... They won't be asking because they want to know the date, the time, the address, or the little details. They'll have done their homework, I'm sure. They've spoken to Robert, my old boss, already, so they know when I arrived in Edinburgh and which day I started work. They probably have a copy of my timetable. If they wanted to, they could pinpoint our first meeting to the minute. They won't be asking because they want to know what I'll say. They'll just want to know how I say it. Will my eyes go right or left? Am I remembering or inventing? They'll be measuring my truth against the one they've built from other witnesses, gauging whether I can be trusted or whether I'm a liar. So when they ask, I'm not going to roll my eyes and tell them they're wasting my time. I'm not going to tell them that I can hardly bear to go over this again, that every time someone asks me, I have to live through it all over again. I'm not going to ask if they know what it feels like holding up the weight of everything that happened. I won't make a fuss, it wouldn't help. I'm gonna take a small breath, look straight ahead and tell them the truth. I can't get nervous and stop rattling on about how I didn't plan to be in Edinburgh. I won't ask them to remember what had happened to me and why I'd run away from London, why I was in Scotland at all. I won't remind them that I could have had no inkling of how terribly things would turn out. Besides, even if I had, I wouldn't have cared. I didn't care about anything then. I'm just going to answer as simply as I can. I met them on the 6th of January, 2011, in the basement room at 58 Ranquila Street, and I wouldn't have believed any of them could do something so monstrous. Ba, Ba ba
1: It, it, as you can tell from Natalie's lovely reading, it's quite a serious tone book. That doesn't mean to it say that serious, there's not yeah, humour in it. Yeah. Um, but grief bears quite heavily yes. in it. Do, do you, you know, I've, I've heard that you have associations between Edinburgh and grief.
0: I do. Yeah, yeah, I always feel bad for Edinburgh because it's a city that I love. I've lived a year of my life there because I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as a comedian for 10 years. So I've lived 10 Augusts there. Um, and then I was on tour, you know, for 12 years. So I was often in Edinburgh and I spent years going out with a boy from Edinburgh, so I spent a lot of time around there. So, yeah, I've lived about a year of my life there and a lot of that time has been incredibly unhappy and it really isn't Edinburgh's fault. Edinburgh has this reputation of being very cold-hearted. You know, it has the gray stone buildings and that um do you know this from uh, Irvin welsh must have been here and told you this um but edinburgh's reputation in scotland especially um is um distilled into the sentence you'll have had your tea right (laughs) so when you go around someone's house they assume that you won't want anything to eat or drink (laughs) because they are mean that's the principle i can only say that's the opposite of my experience of edinburgh which is that it looks very stern and gray and cool but in fact it's incredibly open hearted. And just by coincidence of touring schedule, I was in, I was on my way to Edinburgh, I was on the train on my way to Edinburgh when I got the message to say that my grandfather had died. And he was very old, he was in his nineties and he'd had a stroke. So it was, you know, it wasn't a surprise, it wasn't a shock, it wasn't a tragedy, but it was sad for sure. Um, And then a year and a half later, I was on stage, God, it's like a moment in a Robin Williams film. I was on stage um, at the university, which is just between where Alex lives and where Alex works in this book. doing a gig at the uh, Student Union um, Comedy Society. And it was going really well. And you have to understand, most of my gigs did not go that well. Um, I have literal scars to prove one of them. And, uh, well, just one scar. Let's not, you know, but uh, anyway, they often didn't, but it went really well. And, um, I encored, which did not happen very often. Um, and I came off stage feeling, you know, like four feet off the floor. And there was the message on my phone from the hospital in Wales saying that my grandmother was no longer ill, but was dying. And I needed to, and I remember running across the city to the Stan comedy club, um, which is over in the new town because uh, in those days people's phones didn't have the internet i know the past was different from now um and so i ran there and they let me into the office even though it was like midnight or something on a tuesday night they let me into the office to to book an earlier flight so i could get back to see her so yeah and then like a week and a half later she was dead and and the funeral had happened and i was back up in edinburgh staying there doing shows and having the most disastrous gigs uh in glasgow which i don't blame it for um uh, because I just didn't care. You know, it's very hard to be a comedian when terrible things have happened to you. <laughs> you just don't feel like it. Oh, yay! What? Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I do associate it with grief, undeniably. It's a, it's a sad book. I don't, I don't think it has a, a sad ending, but lots of people do, just so you know. Teenagers generally think it has a happy ending, and so do I, um, but adults often don't.
1: You're going to have to read it to interpret yeah, that, unfortunately, because I'm not going to give away the end. It's difficult. <laughs> oh,
0: it's difficult. Yeah.
1: Is it true that the working title for the Amber Fury was "Morningside Becomes Electra"? <laughs> no, um, it really isn't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke that I can hear that half the audience understand, and some would need to have explained that Morningside is a district of, of Edinburgh. Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, no, actually, Mel lives in um, uh, one of the students. Mel mm-hmm. lives in Marchmont, uh, which is next to Morningside, mm-hmm. um, and Carly lives over in the new town by the botanics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annika lives also in the New Town and nobody, I didn't think of it until way too late but nobody lived in Morningside and I thought about going and writing it back in just so I could steal the title Morning Becomes a Lecture for a hilarious pun, Morningside Becomes a Lecture and then I remembered it was sort of a tragedy <laughs> maybe a punning title would be inappropriate um, but yeah, it's, uh, quite often when you write a book people want you to change the title and nobody did want this title changed uh, luckily for me Uh, although it has a different title in America. Um, But uh, when people were asking, oh, you know, are there any other titles you considered? It was just the easiest way to shut down the conversation was to go, yeah, we were going to call it Morningside Becomes Electra with a totally straight face. (laughs) And then wait for them to go, no, definitely not that, definitely not that. (laughs) So no, it wasn't the working title, I promise. The
1: the American title is simply The Furies, isn't it?
0: It is The Furies because um, they were worried that the title of the book, The Amber Fury, Um, is technically for classicists you already know this uh it's sort of technically a kind of pun um because the story or a story oh it's so difficult to talk about this book a story which plays out in the book is the story of Electra um from the Oresteia the the students start reading the Oedipus and then they move on to the Alcestis and then they start reading the Oresteia um and so the Electra story plays out through it, and Electra is the Greek word for amber. So it was quite, a, it was quite an obscure pun, and it's certainly not a funny one, but there, the play on words was hidden in the title. And they were 100% convinced that that wasn't going to play in Kansas, um, which is fair enough. They made a choice. Um, and so they went with the Furies, um, which they were kind of like, oh, we don't want it to sound too classical, and you go... I'm no expert, but Fury singular it has a dual meaning. Fury's plural is just the Furies, isn't it? <laughs> but it's beautiful. The American cover is beautiful. It's green. With I love, the, I love both the covers of this book, actually. Bless you. Um, but uh, it's green with these elongated shadows. But this one is nice. Lovely cover. Yeah. I haven't liked any cover of any book, I don't think, until this one, really. So that was lucky. Got there in the end.
1: Do, do Americans understand what amber is as a colour? As a thing? Because they might. Because their traffic
0: m- lights not having it.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, well, my, my memory of as being in Los Angeles and people referring to yellow lights rather than amber. But
0: I don't know. We'll have to go and <laughs> um, ask.
1: And Philip Pullman's the Amber Spyglass had a changed different tooth, name, didn't it? Yeah. No, that's
0: true. I think Amber there is is a—it's like a teen romance kind of name. It's a its a name that a mean girl would have in Mean Girls. If you yeah. see what I mean. Uh, or possibly in Clueless. Is somebody called Amber in Clueless? Can I imagine that? Are they? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. So I think it's like a mean teenage girl name, uh, which is a different kind of mean from... It's sort of, you know, wearing knee socks and yeah. passive-aggressively making girls cry. She's that kind of person, I think, in, in America. I like it. That's why I chose it, but, yeah.
1: The, the teaching scenes are done so well in the amber fury thank it sort of, you. but it prompts a question have have you done teaching in of yourself
0: or? no not really i do a lot of uh, i do a lot of school visits and i've talked i talked very very briefly um as a, a substitute teacher i think you would say but my parents were both teachers um so that was the it's, it's sort of vaguely in the blood i hoped uh but when the first draft was written, people were like, mm, maybe the school scenes need some work. And then, uh, you know, maybe these students don't sound you know, quite right. And now it's the, the first thing I get is from people who work at people referral units, particularly and teachers in general, just go, yes, yes, that is what it is like. It is impossible. Yeah. Good. Sorry. And then every now and then somebody sweetly asks at an event, Oh, do you think somebody who works at People Referral Unit should use Greek tragedy like in your book? Have you read it? No. <laughs> of course they shouldn't. They should carry no. on doing their excellent and professional job and not blunder into doing something disastrous like happens in my novel. That's what they should do. Everything they're currently doing is what they should do.
1: The the, the line that sticks in my mind you know, from the children and the referral unit is fuck off. Said Ricky, not unkindly. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, I love Ricky. Yes, he's my editor's favourite. I was determined. Um, I was determined when I wrote the second draft of this book. When I was editing it, um, at the same time as reading 151 books in 204 days for the Booker Prize. You're welcome. Um, so I was twitching, and that was nice. Um, <laughs> tick, tick. Uh, I was determined that everybody would have a different favourite student when they read it through. Um, and my editor loved Ricky. So he has a whole tiny subplot that's just there for her. Um, but I always loved Jono, and nobody liked Jono. Every meeting I went to, when this book was being bought, you go from kind of one publisher to another. And it's a bit like a wedding. Everybody kind of stands in a the line. They go, oh, i your book. is marvellous. Oh, i your book. is marvellous. And you go, thanks very much. Well, I've just spent two years in a room on my own. I'm a little surprised to see people. Um, and... Uh, and, and then everyone was like, oh, I love Annika. She's amazing. Or I love Carly because she's this. Or I love Mel because she's this. Or I love Ricky. And nobody ever liked Jono. So in the rewrite, I was determined that he would be. He's my secret favorite. Um, but he is probably the least likable, I would guess. But I like him.
1: He's got some great lines.
0: He does. He's the funniest. <laughs> yeah. He's the funniest by far. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, that time is now up. Um, it just remains to, to thank Natalie again. Natalie is such a famous, fast but lucid talker that I actually think that you've had about three hours' worth. <laughs> you know, in this hour. so please <laughs> thank Oh, you. and Natalie will be available at the author signing desk. Yeah.
0: I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.